turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Jonah. We're there again for our second, second week in Jonah as we take a, a brief break from our study of Matthew. Jonah, again, is one of the, the minor prophets, comes right after Obadiah, the book of Jonah. One of our church members, since he found out that we're going to be going through Jonah, has told me time and time again about the tale of the pastor who brought the children down and told the story of Jonah and had all the kids, you know, attention, telling them and, and asked them, what, is, what, what does Jonah teach us? What do we learn from Jonah? And the fact that, that he was swallowed by a big fish and then spit out upon the, the dry land and then went and preached. And, and one of the little boys looked up at him and said, well, that means that God doesn't like bad preachers. I don't know why that's been told to me time and time again over the last few weeks, but, you know, start to get a hint. I don't know. I don't know. Today we turn to Jonah, uh, chapter 1, beginning verse 17. We're going to read through the end of chapter 2, verse 10. Look at, at Jonah's prayer and look at how God's mercy leads to salvation. Let's read together this passage this morning. Jonah 1, beginning in verse 17. We ended last week on verse 17, and now we're going to pick back up. A lot of scholars would, would see 17 just as a part of 10. Uh, it is one section in the text, and so we will start there this morning. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then... Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love but with but i with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what i have vowed i will pay salvation belongs to the lord and the lord spoke to the fish and it vomited jonah out upon the dry land now, when we come to this passage, we turn to verse 17 of chapter 1, and, and what we're going to see here in this verse is a significant verse because it's a verse that, that shows us that Jonah is a sign of things to come. We, we talked about this whole idea of a great fish last week, and, and, and the great fish has, has captivated scholars and believers and unbelievers alike for years, and, and rightly so. It is a, an incredible story. 
We talked about last week a little bit, the, the questions of can it really be? Could that be possible? And we talked about how just in recent news up in, up in Cape Cod, we understand that it is indeed possible for a man to be swallowed by a whale and then spit out and still live. But I would contend to you today that perhaps what is the most remarkable aspect of this, that, that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, is the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The, the duration of time that he was in the fish is what was truly a miracle of God. And it doesn't matter how you slice it, it doesn't matter how you look at it, it is indeed a miracle. For Jonah to stay in a fish for an extended period of time and then live, it is a miracle. And we're reminded, I think at this point we have to be reminded, we have to look at it and say, you know what, no matter what we say, we understand that God did a great work here. Our God is not confined to natural things. He is not confined to what I can explain, to what you can explain. And as I've said time and time again, if our God is confined to what I can explain or what you can explain, then, then we are shrinking him down and he is just a little God that we manufacture and create. And he certainly is not worthy of our worship if he can do nothing greater than what we can fathom. He is a great and a mighty God who does far beyond what we can imagine. He is an awesome and a mighty and a holy God. Now, when scholars come to this portion and they look and they say, well, what is the significance of the three days and the three nights? They, there, there's no real indication to what the significance of that is when Jonah writes it. There, there's not a lot of contemporary references to something like that. There are some things that they go, well, it could be this, it could be that. Is there a significance to it being three days and three nights? And they just don't know. They don't know. But, but what, what I would say is this, is that when we come to Scripture, we have to remember what Scripture is. When Jonah shares this, he goes through this experience and he recounts his testimony of what had happened. He has no idea what awaits Christ at Calvary. He has no idea. But Jonah knows what's happened to him. And he said, this happened. And I was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. And he writes of this. And the reason we have to remember what Scripture is, we come to Scripture and we understand, understand that this is not just a book. It is not just a book that man has written, but it is a book written by godly men who are led by the Holy Spirit. So we understand in, in 2 Peter 1.21, when we come to that passage, 2 Peter 1.21, I think, informs us a lot of what we understand in, in Jonah 1.17 because Peter wrote this. He said, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God inspired Jonah to write of his account. God worked in a supernatural, amazing way in this instance to carry out his plan. Jonah does not know the significance of three days and three nights when he pens this. But God knows. God has a plan. God is working it out. And he sees and knows that Jonah is a sign. That's what Pastor Ricky read right? Pastor Ricky read Jonah, or Matthew 12, 38 to 42, which we'll get to in our study of Matthew down the road. But in Matthew 12, 38 to 42, what Jesus says is there's no other sign that's going to be given. So when the people come to Christ, they say, would you give us a sign as to who you are and what God's doing? He says, listen, there's no other sign going to be given except for the sign of Jonah. So he's pointing back to this moment, a moment in which Jonah was experiencing certain death. 
This is not a moment in, in which, you know, you talk about the, the gentleman up in Cape Cod last month. Do you remember, I, I share with you, or if you went and read the article and the account of what happened, if you read that, you remember that when he was in that moment, when he was in that well, he, he is, starts flailing about. He is not sitting there calm and going, well, this will just all work out for good, right? He's panicking, and I would imagine Jonah is in the same place. He's at, the, at that moment not thinking, hey, this is great. I'm going to be a sign for the Messiah. Right? He is in a moment of certain death and is only the merciful deliverance of God that saves him. But that merciful deliverance of God becomes a sign that when he goes to speak and proclaim the good news to the Ninevites, they hear and they know that God has done a mighty work. In Matthew twelve forty, what Ricky read, we read, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus' certain death and victorious resurrection would be a sign that he is indeed the Messiah. And Jonah prepared us to understand that, to better understand that through death, God would deliver and save. That's what we start to understand with Jonah because Jesus is a true and a better Jonah who not only rose from the pit of death to declare salvation, but he rose from the pit of, the, of death to win salvation. That is the true and better Jonah. That is who Christ is in 117. When we read that, it prepares us to understand the work of Christ on the cross, in the grave, and when he rises victoriously over death. We turn to chapter 2, verse 1, and we enter into the prayer that Jonah prays. That's certainly a, a, a reasonable thing to do in that moment when Jonah probably figures out, I can't flail around anymore, my elbows aren't working, I'm not in a good spot, I'm going to pray. And so we have the opportunity to read Jonah's prayer, the prayer of a, a wayward prophet. Now, how many times did you see Jonah pray in chapter 1? That's right. None of you are answering because there's not, right? He didn't pray in chapter 1. It took all of the events in chapter 1 to lead Jonah to the point that he actually prayed to God. We don't see him turning to the Lord. Why is this? It's because the reality that we're, when we are running from God, we rarely commune with God. We rarely commune with God. When we're turning from Him and we're running from Him, that disobedience hardens us and we don't turn to the only one that can save us. So in those moments, it, it becomes really convenient just to neglect the Lord. In those moments when we're running from Him, it's really convenient to stay home and not gather with God's people. It's really convenient to imagine that if I do gather, everyone's going to look, on, look at, down on me and they're going to judge me about where I've been. No, that's not the case. Because everyone sitting here can sing with testimony the song we sang, the second song we sing. That our sins are great, but His mercy is more. God's had mercy on everybody's life in this room. Everybody's life. There's all, all of us have had times where we ran from the Lord, where we disobeyed, where we found ourselves in sin, and God poured out His mercy on us. And so, in those times of running, we must come back to the Lord. Well, in Jonah's time, when he runs from God, what does God do? God brings affliction upon him. We read of that in chapter 1, of, of all that God does in, in controlling all of nature to bring about the instance where they throw Jonah overboard. They throw him overboard and he's swallowed by a great fish. God brings discipline and affliction into Jonah's life. He does the same for us. 
to teach us and to bring us back to Him. Right, the psalmist writes of this in Psalm 119. We, we studied this several Wednesday nights ago, a couple months ago, I guess now, months ago now, I guess. But Psalm 119, the psalmist writes in verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I, I keep your word. And then later in Psalm 119, verse 71, he, he says, It's good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes, he says. He, he continues on and, and he gets down to verse 75 and he says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. The psalmist has a, a high view of God. The psalmist is not serving a God who is weak and who is not able to work and bring upon the things that, upon him the things that need to turn him back to him. The, the psalmist has a high view of God and understands that God and his love and faithfulness brings things into our lives to turn us back when we're running from him to turn us back to him. Charles Spurgeon said that saints are, are sure about the rightness of their troubles even when they cannot see the intent of them they're sure about the rightness of their troubles even when they can't see the intent of them listen god uses various means to turn wayward believers who are struggling in sin back to him we see this in jonah we see it in the psalms we see it elsewhere in scripture that god uses means to turn us back to him that may be going on in your life it may be something where you have, have strayed, you've run from the Lord, you're, you're living in sin, and God is using things to bring you back to Him. I would encourage you and, and plead for you to turn to the Lord in prayer and seek Him and seek His face in the midst of affliction. In verses 2 through 9, we get into the, the heart of Jonah's prayer. And we see in his prayer echoes of Psalms. If you, if you read and if, you're, if you read the Psalms much, I love the Psalms because they're so, they're, there's so much emotion there. There's so much of, of people just pouring out their hearts to the Lord. And we see the same thing here in Jonah. We understand when we read this verse or this passage from Jonah, we understand he indeed was a man of Scripture. He knew the Word. We see a familiar structure. If you think about the Psalms, you'll, you'll see structures to this very similar that you see here in Jonah 2. In verse 2, Jonah gives testimony of God's deliverance. He, he, he testifies of the fact that God delivered him. And then in verse 3 through 7, he recounts the crisis. He tells us what exactly was going on, what had happened, what the crisis was. And then in verse 8, he declares a truth out of that. The truth that, that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is a truth that, that comes out of it. And then verse 9, he gives thanks to God. Thanksgiving to God for what he has done. He will sacrifice to him. He will fulfill his vows. And he declares that salvation belongs to the Lord. He is replicating and showing the same idea and same, um, the same structure that we see in the Psalms. Because this prayer is anchored in the truths of the Psalms. In, in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, uh, he says, I cry, it, it echoes or references Psalm 3, 4. I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. In Psalm 18, 6, we read, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him 
reached his ears. You see the same exact thing in Psalm 77, 1, Psalm 120, verse 1, Psalm 142, verse 1. We see it over and over and over again. And throughout the rest of Jonah's prayer, every verse finds its roots in the Psalms. If you've got a study Bible, if you've got one that has cross-references, if you'll look, every verse has a cross-reference is rooted in the Psalms. There's a Psalm that, that is informing what Jonah's praying. That should remind us, why should we be students of God's Word? Why should we study the Word? Why, why should we know it? Why should we memorize it? It's because it's the Word of God in the lives of His, of His people throughout history that directs our prayers, our faith, and our actions today. We must know the Word. It's kind of like, it's kind of like playing guitar. When I, when I was learning to play guitar the first few times, I don't know if, if anybody in here is... It plays guitar or maybe other instruments. I can't speak for other instruments. But, but the first few times I picked up a guitar, it was so hard to form chord shapes. And it was so uncomfortable. And, and it was just, I couldn't go from the most basic chord. I couldn't go from a G to a D. It just wouldn't work. But I started doing over and over and over again. And my, my, my teacher, what he told me is he said, just make a G shape and a D. And a G, and a D, and a G, and just keep on going from one to another. And he said, if you'll do that about 20 times, it develops muscle memory. And then you just do it. And he's right. I, I don't play guitar as much as I used to, but I can still walk over and, and pick up a guitar. There's not one over there, just a bass. But if there's a guitar over there, I can still walk up and just pick it and, and just play because I have muscle memory, right? It's the same thing. When we study the Word, when we dive into the Word and we meditate upon it and we just dig into it, it develops this spiritual muscle memory that informs the way we live, the way we believe, and our prayers. So that when we're in a moment and there's times where the grief is real, the grief is deep, the sorrow, the concern, the anxieties are oppressive, they're weighing upon you, and in those moments, what happens? That spiritual muscle memory happens when you cry out to the Lord and you pray to Him and it just echoes the, the Word, the Scriptures. Why? Because you're a student of the Word. You know it. You studied it. And you find yourself simply praying it. That's what Jonah's doing. He's anchoring his prayer in the truths of God's Word. And if you notice, it's anchored in the sovereignty of God. We talk about that and how we see God just sovereignly working in this passage, in this account, all throughout the book of Jonah. And we see it again. In verse 3, who cast him into the deep? Was it the sailors? No. For you cast me into the deep, he says. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah understood who this was that was acting. He understood what was going on. It was the work of God. But he also understood that the affliction was God, but yet in verse 6, that salvation was from God. Who brought him up? Was it the fish? No, you brought me up from the pit, O Lord my God. He understood that God was sovereignly working, that God, while he punished him, he also saved him. His life was not a series of lucky breaks or random events. His life was lived under the providential plan of a sovereign and a mighty and an awesome and a holy God. And Jonah rested in that and prayed to that God he served. So, when I get through this prayer and look back, there's three questions, three questions that just kind of stood out to me that I asked about the text and about my own life. Here, here's the first question from 
the first two verses, verse 17 of chapter 1 and into verse 1 of chapter 2, is where does running from the Lord lead? Where does running from the Lord lead? This is a wayward prophet. We, we, we need to remember that. I mentioned that briefly last week. We need to remember that this is a, a prophet. He is a godly man. And he's running. He's running from the God he serves. He's running from the God he's supposed to proclaim his message. And he's running. He's fleeing. And that reminds us. I mentioned this last week. It reminds us that we cannot fall into looking down on Jonah. We cannot fall into looking down. Why? Because if he, a godly man who is a successful prophet, as we saw earlier in 2 Kings, if he can turn from the Lord and be caught in a moment where he flees the Lord and runs from him, surely I can as well. But I know the truth of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 through 13. We won't read the whole passage, but in there we find this. We find, now these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We understand that when we come to Jonah, Jonah is given for our instruction. It's given to be an example for us. That passage, when, when Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about the wanderings and the disobedience and the defiance of the people in Israel. And he comes now and he says, listen, that was for our example that we might gain instruction. And Jonah, we see the same thing. That we see a man of God who flees from God. But we learn from Jonah what? We learn the futility of trying to run from God. It is absolutely futile to do. Listen, Psalm 139, we read two verses. I want you to hear this. Last week, I just read two verses of this, and I want you to hear Psalm 139. We think about the futility of running from the Lord. It says that in chapter 1 that, that Jonah ran from the presence of God. Listen to Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. You see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying that, that God knows perfectly all that we do. He knows our very thoughts. It says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Long before I have them, you discern them. He said, you're acquainted with all of my ways. You know every word before it's on my tongue. There is futility in running for God. How could we run from that God? How could we run from the one who knows our going outs and our coming in? How can we run from the one who is perfectly omniscient? He knows all things. How can we run from the one who is omnipresent? He is everywhere. We can't. 
We can't. We talked about how, honestly, how silly it was for the prophet of God, for Jonah, to try to flee from the presence of God. There is nowhere that we can go, nor anything we can do, that God does not know. We can't hide from Him. Now, listen, this is not to give you a, this fearful idea of God where you, where you live and you walk and you're thinking He's just constantly looking over your shoulder and you live in fear that He's just going to hammer you, just going to smite you and wipe you out. It's simply to cause you to lift your eyes to the Lord and serve Him in faithfulness. It's to cause you to gaze upon the magnificence of a sovereign and a mighty and an omniscient and an omnipresent God. One who is greater than anything we can behold. One whom we would look to and say, my knowledge cannot get close to you. You are an awesome God. The perfect presence and knowledge of God should be, for the believer, a place of great peace and strength and encouragement to us. Because it is the perfect presence of God, the ever-presence of God, the perfect wisdom of God, the all-knowingness of God that lies behind the beautiful truth of Romans 8, 38, 39. Where Paul says that there's nothing, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor debt nor anything else in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Why? Because He is an awesome God. And we can't flee from His presence, which should open our eyes to see the futility of running, but it should also be a great peace and a great comfort that there is nowhere that you go this day, this week, there's no one that your loved one, nowhere that your loved one can be right now that is outside of the presence of our great God. You are never alone. They are never alone. They are in the presence of God Almighty who cannot be, whose love cannot be separated from them. We rest in that. Nothing separates us. So why would you be running from God? Why would you try to run from God? If you're running to hide from sin, you need to know that sin cannot be hidden. If you're running from God's call on your life, you need to know that it's never too late to turn and pursue and obey His call in your life. We'll talk about that more next week. The second question, second question that comes to my mind in reading this prayer of John is this, is what do I truly deserve? Like, what do I deserve? What do you deserve? Just, just think about your life. What do we really deserve? And the reason I ask that question is I, I read verses 3 through 6, and, and I read this, and, and it's kind of like, you know, we taught last week that if we come to verse 17 and it just says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and it just ends, and that's it. Then we all go home and go, yep, he got what he deserved. That's what we expect. But God's unexpected mercy is the fish was not just punishment, it was deliverance. It was a way that God delivered Jonah. And we come, and in his prayer, in verse 3, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And I read that, and I go, yes, that's probably what you deserve, Jonah. I see nothing wrong with that. You've defied 
your God. You've rebelled against Him. You've sinned against Him. And that's absolutely what you deserve. But then we come to 6, the very last phrase or last sentence in in verse 6. And He says, Yet, yet, or but you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. It's the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God. Jonah deserved punishment. He deserved death. Yet God gave life. It's the same for us. It's the same situation in our lives. Right? We deserve wrath. God gave mercy. We deserve death. God gave life. We deserve punishment. But yet God blesses us. We deserve to pay for our sins. Yet God paid for them by the blood of Christ. We deserved condemnation, but yet God gave forgiveness. You see, the believer, and we sit and we go, what do we deserve? We can totally go with verse 3 through the first part of 6 and say, that is absolutely what I deserve. Because I know that I transgressed against God. I know that I defied Him. I stood in rebellion to Him. I sinned against Him. I did not obey. And while I have the tendency, I was a professional, it's not fairer as a child, right? I knew how to say that. You did too. And probably a lot of the kids in here, it's not fair. It's not fair. Well, praise the Lord when it comes to our salvation in Christ that God is not fair, but he is merciful and gracious to those who trust in the name of Jesus Christ. What do I truly deserve? I deserve hell and punishment and damnation, but because of the mercy of God, I've been saved by the cross of Christ and his blood shed for me. I have forgiveness instead of condemnation. I have life instead of death, mercy instead of wrath, blessing instead of punishment, because Christ paid for the sins that I committed. He paid the price that I should have paid. He is a great and an awesome God. We look to him and we worship him because he has not given us what we deserve all those who are in christ so the question then becomes this unbeliever what do you truly deserve what do you truly deserve like if if you're sitting here today and you're not a christian what do you deserve have you thought about just just consider your life Consider your your actions. Consider the words you've spoken the past week, the past month. Consider the the thoughts that you have. Just consider, are you you righteous? Are are you holy? Are, Are you blameless? Could you stand innocent before a holy God who is just in all His ways? He is perfectly holy, perfectly just. Could you stand before him and say, I'm blameless. I'm innocent. I'm holy. I mean, we, we could just very easily start walking down the, the list of questions and say, have you ever lied? Say, let's raise our hands. And we do that, and everybody in here, we raise our hands. Have you ever stolen? Have you ever looked at another with lust? Have you ever desired what was not yours? And we would see very quickly that none of us are holy. You would have to understand if you're an unbeliever that you do not stand innocent before a holy God. And the question, can you mark yourself pure and blameless, is followed up by this. is If you would say no, and I think every honest individual would have to say no, what means do you have to erase all of that? How do you get rid of those things? Is there 
a certain amount of good things that you can do that will erase the bad, the sin, the evil in your life? Like, is there this certain point that I kind of get over the hump and, and then as I do more good things, the bad things just kind of disappear? We know that's not true. Because I would say a lot of you in here have done many, many good things. But you still know the rebellion and the sin and the evil because they can't be erased. Your unrighteous heart cannot be transformed into a righteous heart by anything you can do. We have no capability of doing that. We have no capability of saving ourselves. And so I just want you to hear, unbeliever, Romans 3, 21 to 26. If you'd answer no to those questions, then you have to, to say, no, I can't stand blameless before God. I'm not righteous before Him. I know I've sinned. Hear this. Romans 3, 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through, through what? Is it through your good deeds? Is it through you being a good person? Is it through you going to church? Is it through you saying the right things? Is it through you impressing your parents? Is it through you impressing your pastor? No, it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by what? To be received by good deeds? To be received by saying the right things? Doing the right things? Born into the right family? No. It's to be received by what? The Word of God says to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. Why? So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, you need to understand, what do we deserve? We deserve death and punishment. We deserve the wrath of God. But God is a merciful God who makes a way of salvation, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. So if you're here today, you're listening, you're an unbeliever, I would call you to turn from your sin. Stop running from God and turn in faith, in trust to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Third question. Verse 8. Am I forsaking my hope for steadfast love? Am I forsaking my hope for steadfast love? Look what he says in verse 8. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The, the NIV says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah John is pointing out a truth here that idolatry is vanity. It is vain. It's worthless. It's useless. The, the, the problem is that we live in a culture consumed with idolatry, and I think most of us in here know that. The, the problem with idolatry is really twofold. One is, is that it blinds us, it deceives us, and we don't even realize that we're idolaters. We don't see it. We're kind of walking blinded, and we don't realize that we are in the midst of idolatry. 
The second problem is that when we do realize it, we're, we're typically so attached to it and cling so tight to it that we don't want to let go. We don't let go. We're, we're deceived and captivated in our day by, by idols like success. Success at work or success at home as a parent or success at school with your ACT scores and your GPA or success in sports as being the most dominant individual on the team or in your sport. We're obsessed and, and, and hold idols such as materialism. We want to accumulate the, the biggest house, the nicest car, the slickest boat, or the greatest collection of whatever it is. We, we're, we're consumed by the idols of other people, that our lives revolve around role models. There are people that will walk by that would cause you just to oh, fall over because you so look up to them and so worship them, and all you want to do is meet them. We're consumed by that idolatry of celebrities, of boyfriends and girlfriends, even family, that we would do anything for any of those individuals above and beyond God. We're obsessed with the idolatry of self-image, the idolatry that we are unwilling to do anything that might tarnish the image that I've created, my own personal brand. I've manufactured this image on Insta or Snap or my, my Vis- was it Visco or whatever it is, um, Facebook adults, right? This is not something just for teenagers. The whole social media challenge and this idea that we would idolize a certain image that we lift up to people. I think sometimes the adults sitting here go, yeah, that's right, teenagers. Well, guess what? It is not just a problem for teenagers. It is a problem for everyone sitting in this room. If you're on social media, we always put what we want people to see on Facebook. We put the pictures that are going to make us look good and make people think what we want them to think of ourselves. Why? Because the idol of self, we want to create an image that people look to and love. That's idolatry. It's idolatry. I always say if we sit in here, if anybody's sitting in here, and I'm talking to myself, if anybody sits in here today and says, you know what, I have no problem with idolatry, it's not there, I would say you need to wake up and examine your heart and ask God to search your heart and to know your thoughts. Because we have hearts that tend to just simply manufacture idols, as John Calvin said. They are manufacturing idols. It's a battle that we would daily look to the Lord. If you don't believe it's easy to fall into idolatry, just look at the testimony of God's people. That right after they follow God, they see the magnificent works of God, Jonah, or um, Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain. They know what he's doing. He's communing with God Almighty who just redeemed them and saved them. They know what he's doing. And what do they do? They start worshiping a calf. How easy is it to slip into idolatry? And Jonah here declares the vanity of that. He declares the uselessness of that. Write down in your notes, Isaiah 44, 6 to 23, and Psalm 115, 1 to 8. Go home and, and look at those today. The vanity of idolatry that is absolutely useless. Jonah's declaring that here. Listen, when we turn from God to the idols of man, whether that's success, materialism, people, or self-image, when we do that, we're doing exactly what the people of God did in Jeremiah 2, where, where God said, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. They've turned from me the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
You can read that passage. That's Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13. You can read the whole passage. But God is saying, listen, my, my people have turned from me and they've tried to put stuff in their lives that will heal and help and save and deliver, and they won't do those. It's like a broken pitcher. It's like me giving you a gallon of water that's fresh and clean, or actually, better yet, a water hose of fresh, clean water that just keeps on flowing and flowing and flowing. You go, you know what, that's all right, I'll take this. It's a dirty, broken pot, and say, yeah, I'll just use this, and it won't even hold water. That's the uselessness of turning to idols. It's the uselessness of looking to anything outside of God. And, And Jonah says that those who do that, forsake their hope of steadfast love steadfast love is found only in christ only in christ listen those things that we listed people they will satisfy you temporarily but they will let you down i will let you down your celebrity whoever it is you look up to will let you down that stuff that you worship and hold so dear, that house that is so beautiful and so perfect that you've invested so much in, that house can burn. That car can be wrecked. None of it will save you. None of it will get to the end of your life and go, wow, that boat, that car, that job, that sport saved my life. No, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Are you forsaking? Your hope for steadfast love. Steadfast love is not in any of those things. Steadfast love is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So we come to Jonah's conclusion. What is his concluding statement? He ushers forth in thanksgiving. I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. And what is his declaration? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah 2 is a display of God's mercy, and the end result is a declaration of God's salvation. Because God's mercy leads to salvation. You you understand, Jonah's predicament was entirely self-inflicted. It's self-inflicted. Just imagine how it would have been. It would have been totally different if it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And then in verse 3, if we read, So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. The whole book's different at that point. But no, instead, Jonah flees, he turns, he runs from God, he's in sin, and so it is self-inflicted. But God is abundant in mercy, and he saves Jonah. Jonah sinned, God saved. Jonah rebelled, God redeemed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That should be the resounding theme of the life of every believer. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Why? Because there is a fountain filled with blood, and that blood cleanses me and forgives me of every sin. That should be the theme of our life. It should be the boast of our tongue. This should be the resounding theme that we would say with Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace, I've been saved through faith. This is not of my own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And Paul says that no one may boast, not in their works, but instead that we would boast in the cross of Christ and what he has done. He says the same thing. He gets into 1 Corinthians 1. He says, consider your calling, brothers. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the saints. And he's say, he's, look at us, all of us here that are believers. And he says, consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That's kind of a punch to the gut. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written what? That we boast in ourselves, that we boast that we saved ourselves, that we boast how great we are. No, that it is is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord that we would boast in him that we would do the same thing that jonah does jonah doesn't say hey well i i worked this out pretty well for myself i found a fish to jump into i'm alive now i'm on the sea good deal worked out good for me no he doesn't he says salvation belongs to the lord now you know what's beautiful is this is not the only time we hear this statement we flip forward and we go to the end and we come to Revelation 7, 9 through 10 and we see that beautiful scene with everybody gathered around the throne. And we see, John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude. He looks all around. There's a great multitude that no one could number, he says. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. Now any guesses on what they're crying out? salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In the end, when all is said and done, no one declares at the end of days, my stuff saved me. No one declares my popularity saved me. No one declares my bank account saved me. No one declares my health Save me. No one declares that my Facebook image saved me. No one declares that my friends saved me, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, my kids, my successful um, writing, my pastorate. Nothing of that saves. In the end of the days, when we stand before God Almighty, the only thing left to say is salvation belongs to the Lord. For the Lord is our salvation let's pray father we 